0: Thank you all for returning, being out tonight as we look at Psalm 32. I haven't decided for absolute certainty, but I think tonight will be my last night in the Psalms. Uh, I uh, wanted to be in the Psalms to deal with the passages that correlated with the events that took place in First and Second Samuel, uh, so that we could uh, get that extra information. And uh, so now I'm going to be moving. Next to the book of Ephesians, because i like for the most part to be in the Old Testament in one of the, our services in the New Testament and the other service, so we're going to be in the book of Ephesians. Uh, a couple people ask me what we're going to be doing after Second Samuel is over, and the answer is I intend to keep plowing and do First and Second Kings, and uh, so far people have been pretty positive to 2 Samuel, I hope you can... Uh, Stomach some more Old Testament, but uh, there are some great, great passages in those books. So that's what the future holds, Lord willing. And uh, tonight we're in Psalm 32. Psalm 32 is, again, written out of that experience of David's sin with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband Uriah. Therefore, it's very informative to what was going on in the heart and mind of David during the particular time in which he's confronted by Nathan, when Nathan says, Thou art the man. Psalm 32 basically has three movements. It, it, it flows in a pretty powerful way. It starts out with talking about how wonderful it is to experience God's forgiveness. Then that's contrasted with the misery that he was under when he was convicted and yet failed to repent and uh, sought the forgiveness of God. And then the third is he commends God's forgiveness to us, that uh, we would avail ourselves of God's forgiveness and experience the joy of the forgiveness for our sins. So we begin by looking at, David describes the joy of being restored to the right place with God, Psalms 32, verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and whose spirit there is no deceit. The notion of blessedness. What is blessedness? Wherein does blessedness consist? I have the, the problem of equating blessedness with happiness. For that is a pretty contemporary understanding that a lot of people do to try to make it simplistic. Uh, what is it to be blessed? Well, to be blessed is to be happy. Well, not really. Not really. Uh, and I have uh, this quote. Uh, that's taken from Unexpected Blessing by uh, Lee Cameron. And uh, he says this, The unending pursuit of happiness is symbolized by the Happy Meal, a stroke out of pure marketing genius. Every child wants to be happy, and Happy Meals send the message that all it takes is a little plastic toy that comes as a gift with your hamburger. And don't parents also want their kids to be happy? After all, the kid has to eat anyway. And it seems like such a small and convenient thing to do, bring a little happiness to a child's life, or at least to avoid the anticipated unhappiness. In a matter of minutes, the half-eaten hamburger is thrown away. In a matter of days, the plastic prize is broken, lost, or entirely forgotten. But no matter, there is always the next happy meal, and the next, and the next. Yet whatever happiness this pursuit may bring is unstable and short-lived. And that's really what happiness is, but that's not what blessedness is. Blessedness is not unstable, it's not, it's not momentary, it's not fleeting, but it's much more permanent than that. So I'd like to begin by looking at what blessedness is in the, in the scriptures, B. However, the issue is, is more than consumerism and materialism, it's a perspective on all life. Blessedness is being in a state of well-being. It's a realization that all is well with my soul. To be blessed is more than to be happy. To be blessed is to be in a position of God's favor. And uh, that's what I would like to give to you tonight as what it means to be blessed. It's to be in a position of experiencing God's favor, God's approval, God's acceptance. Psalm 144, verse 15 says, how blessed are the people who are so situated. How blessed are the people Whose God is the Lord. To help us better understand what blessedness is, uh, is to look at its antonym. What is the opposite of being blessed? Well, to be blessed stands in opposition to be cursed. Uh, Give you just some verses here, we could have looked at more, but Deuteronomy 30, verse 19. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I've set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants. Luke 6:28. Bless those who curse you. Romans 12, 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. So the opposite of being blessed is to be cursed. To be cursed is more than to be unhappy. To be cursed is to be in a position under God's judgment. Galatians 3:13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, "Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree." So, to be cursed is to be in a place of God's disfavor. It's to be in a place of judgment. It's to be in a place of experiencing uh, God's disfavor. Three, therefore, to be blessed is to be in a position of favor. So David is talking about this aspect of being restored to a position of experiencing God's favor, that God is once again pleased with us and delights in us. So David talks about that blessedness, that position of abiding under God's favor as a result of being forgiven. So too, David describes the benefits of being restored to a right relationship with God. First, there's the benefit of having one's rebellion pardoned. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Transgression is rebellion against God. It's refusal to do his ways. To be forgiven is to move from a place of being God's enemy to being God's friend. There's the benefit of having one's sin no longer brought up. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Sin is to miss the mark. It is to have fallen short of the target. Cover is to conceal or to hide. Now, putting this in perspective, originally, David went to great lengths and sought desperately to cover up his sin, which is people's normal response. They don't want anyone to know and don't even want God to know. And as we've been in 2 Samuel, you realize the extents that, that David went to to cover up his sin. He after he found out that Bathsheba was pregnant remember, he called Uriah back from the battle and got him drunk and did all these things to, to try to have him to have a sexual relationship with his wife, so it would look like the child was Uriah's child and not David's child, that didn't work. And so then he wanted him dead, but he wasn't going to pull the trigger. Uh, he set it up so it looked like it was an accident, it looked like it was a, a military act, and he died in battle. But it was all arranged by by David, all to cover up what he had done. Hey, he was somewhat successful in covering up his sin before men. Um, Probably most people were unaware of what David did. Uh, Certainly the head of the army knew, and there were a few insiders, but probably was pretty successful in covering up his sin before men. B, he was totally unsuccessful in covering up his sin before God. As we all are. As we all are. And that's important to remember. We may pull the wool over people's eyes, but we never pull the wool over God's eyes. We may be able to keep it out of people's sight, but we never can keep it out of God's sight And so now we have the benefits of transparency, the benefits of being open, vulnerable, candid. Psalm 32, verse 2. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and who is no deceit. Psalm 32, verse 2. David can be free and open with God because God will not use David's sin against him. Bless the man against whom the Lord uh, counts no iniquity. I just realized that I didn't finish a thought under the first part, so forgive me. Uh, That is that David is thankful to God that God covers up David's sin. David had tried to cover up his sin. That was unsuccessful. But God covers it up. Now, in what way does God cover up his sin? Well, that comes to the next one, this aspect of transparency. God does not hold his iniquity against him. He doesn't bring it up. Um, I'm sure you've been in situations with people who have said they forgave you and then Six months later, they're bringing up again what you have done and throwing it in your face and upset with you about what you have done, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, you know, there are times you get into arguments with your spouse or someone else, and, and they're bringing up your past. They're bringing up what you've done. They're rehearsing, rehashing the, the things that, that they're upset with you about. They, they won't let it go. They won't let it go. God lets it go. Oh, that's a go. He doesn't constantly bring it up to you again. Two, David will now be honest and open with God, telling God everything. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit. You see, David had been deceitful. David had lied. David had Gone, as I say, to those great extents in order to cover up his, his sin. Couldn't do it, but pretty successful before man, but not before God. So now, David says, blessed, this person who's in a state of favor, who God is not bringing up his sin to him any longer, and the individual who is no longer practicing deceit. No longer trying to hide their sin before God, who's the ultimate character in this, this song. Uh, why is it that we try to hide our sin from God who we know knows all things? He knows our hearts, he knows our secrets, he knows our thoughts afar off, He knows our up, He knows our, our down sitting, He knows our uprising. He is aware of every single aspect of our lives. And when we fail to seek his forgiveness, it's like we're, we're trying to, to hide it from God. We're, we don't want to admit it. We don't want to accept it. Well, we're foolish if we think we're getting away with that. That, that because I'm resisting, to confess that somehow God doesn't know or God isn't going to hold me accountable. So David talks about the man who's blessed, who's not practicing that deceit before God. Which brings us to three. David now describes the misery of one who has not been restored to fellowship with God, a person who's not experienced forgiveness, a person who has been practicing deceit, A, a person who is unwilling to admit what they have done. And this characterizes nine months of David's life. For it covers the time from the baby's conception till the time in which she Bathsheba is ready to deliver. It's in that context that Nathan comes and says, thou art the man. So David describes the misery of one who has not been restored to fellowship with God, what was going on in David's heart and mind in those nine months. What was it like for David? Here's a very, very vivid picture of a person who was under conviction and yet not repentant. Verses 3 and 4. For when I kept silent, my bones waxed old from my roaring all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer, Selah. So, number one, approximately nine months passed from the time David sinned to his confession of that sin. The silence of which David speaks is the silence of the unrepentant sinner. The unwillingness to speak of that sin to God. That stands in contrast to when he spoke in verse 5. In verse 5 it says, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord. So when he says, I was silent, it's talking about that time before he confessed his sin, before he acknowledged it, while he was still trying to cover it up. B. David describes the physical misery that he was experiencing. For when I kept silence, my bones waste, wasted away. Uh, David was feeling miserable physically. David describes the emotional misery he was experiencing. Groaning all the day long. And it, it, it's talking about just this, this heaviness, this woe is me, this this sense of ill aboding. David describes the spiritual misery that he was experiencing. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. David felt the weight of God's discipline. Your hand is heavy upon me. So let me give you an illustration. When I was growing up, when I was a kid uh, in church, in my elementary years, I had to sit with my family. That changed when I became a teenager, and I didn't have to sit with them any longer, and I have an illustration for that. But but when I was a, a child, I had to sit with my parents, and not only did I have to sit with my parents, but I just sit with my dad on one side and my mother on the other side, and sit between them. And uh, my dad uh, was a farmer, and uh, early years of his life, he had to milk by hand, which resulted in my dad had incredibly strong hands from squeezing, you know, a cow's udder and uh, delivering milk. So he exercised his hands all the time doing that. So. He had really, really big hands, and uh, as a kid, if if I would be not paying attention or moving around or doing something he was not particularly happy with, he would lay his hand on my leg, just let him, let me know that he's there and he's not real happy with what I'm doing. He just laid his hand on my my leg. But if I continued on, if I was not paying attention or doing something, he just, he just started to squeeze my leg, just, just a little bit, as long as I would quickly repent and do what I was supposed to be doing, then the hand would ease off. But if I continued on in my rebellion or whatever, he'd squeeze a little harder, and he would squeeze until... I'd say uncle, you know, until I got my act together, until I was doing what he wanted to do. Well, that's the picture of of David under God's discipline at this time. God's hand was upon David, and he was resisting. He just refused to repent. He refused to acknowledge. He wasn't willing to give in to God at this point. And so God's hand was heavy upon him constantly, day and night. He knew, deep down inside, that God was displeased. But he wasn't ready to address it. So David describes the resulting weakness that he experienced. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my strength was dried up, as by the heat of summer. So David's strength was sapped. Uh, One of the aspects of being depressed is that Many times you're tired, you're tired. You know, there's a world of difference between being physically tired and emotionally tired. Uh, physically tired, a good day's work. Uh, the, the proverb says the rest of the, of the laborer is sweet. Uh, you get to bed, you fall asleep, you have a good night's sleep, and you wake up and you're rested. But emotional weariness, you can't sleep off. Emotional awareness, you go to bed tired, you wake up tired. You don't want to get out of bed. You don't know if you can continue on. And if you just remain in that state, you can get to a a place where it's hard to function. That's what David's describing here. That David's just becoming overwhelmed by what's taking place, but he's unwilling to relent. He's unwilling to give in. Conviction, when it is resisted, is to be in a state of misery. So now David describes the way in which a right relationship to God was restored. How did David come to experience relief? Well, he he moved from the state of conviction to the blessedness of experiencing forgiveness. He's saying how wonderful it is to have that behind me and to be forgiven. So how did he experience this forgiveness? Well, first of all, David confessed his sin to God. David owned his sinfulness before God. He said, I acknowledge my sin to you. It's my sin. I acknowledged it. I accepted it. I owned it. He did not make excuse for it. He did not blame Bathsheba. He did not blame anyone else. And we talked about that before in confession in Psalm 51. He said I, he accepted his sin. He no longer tried to hide it from God. I did not cover my iniquity. Uh, he was willing to speak of his sinfulness. And I would say to you, when you confess your sin, Confess it. Own it. And tell God what you have done. Tell him all of it. Not that he doesn't know, but for your own benefit. To have it open before God. No deceit. No hiding. This is what I've done, this is the hurt that has been caused. David broke his silence and openly repented. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord. And the result is that God forgave David of his sin, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Now David encourages others to experience the blessedness of forgiveness as well. David cites his own example so that we might learn from it, so that we would move from a place of misery and conviction to a place of blessedness and forgiveness. So he commends forgiveness to us. First, David encourages other believers to learn from his experience. Therefore, therefore, based on my experience, based on what I've been through, therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. David encourages other believers to repent as soon as God convicts them of sin, at a time when you may be found. Notice, this is not a call to salvation. These people to whom he's speaking are fellow believers. They're referred to as godly. Godly To be, to be godly doesn't mean to be sinless. To be godly is to belong to God. It's to be his. David never stopped being God's. And he's saying to you and me, who are God's children, pray to God in a time when he may be found, when you come to realize that forgiveness can be yours. You know, I can't tell you all that was going on in David's heart and mind, but I can tell you what goes on in some people's heart and minds because they tell me. And that one thing is sometimes people think they can't be forgiven. They think that what they've done is just unforgivable. They are so conscious of what they have done that that they feel undeserved, unworthy. They see the rebellion. They they see the heartache. And they wonder if, if God will ever really forgive me. And so this aspect when God can be found, when God is in reach, When you know that he is there, and he's always there, but but when you come to realize, when Nathan said to David, you are the man, immediately upon that, uh, David confesses, and he says, you're forgiven, you're forgiven. You will not die. When you come to a realization that God offers you forgiveness, take it. Take it. Take it. God rest you merry, gentlemen. God give you rest. God make you merry. God make you blessed. When your eyes are opened... And you understand that whatever it is that you've done, it can be forgiven and you can be restored. Take it, is what David is saying. See, David encourages them to avoid the flood of grief and pain that comes upon the soul associated with a lack of repentance. Verse 6, Therefore let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. Now he describes this this misery of unrepentance is like a flood that just comes in upon the soul. It just washes over. And David is saying, but, but you can avoid that. <laughs> you can keep that from happening if you repent early. If you seek God's forgiveness, you don't have to go through all that. And so David is encouraging people to repent and repent quickly. And so David expresses the joy over the deliverance That God provided. You're a hiding place for me. Excuse me, I have tears in my eyes and I can't can't read. You're a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. God provides a place of safety. Where the woes of sin cannot find him. You are a hiding place for me. God protects David from all the torments that he had been experiencing. He's a shelter from the flood. You preserve me from trouble. Trouble is to be hard-pressed, is to be stressed out. Twenty-nine different Hebrew words translated into English as trouble. It's to be pressured, it's to be pressed in. It's a weight weight. It's conviction. It's oppressive. It's hard to bear. David says, you're my shelter. You preserve me from trouble. God provides David with a great victory over David's sin. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. The imagery is that of the conquering victor on the battlefields. That erupts into, light, into glee, having won the battle. And I have here, think of the rebel yell in the Civil War. The, the rebels were famous for their rebel cry, this piercing, yelling victory. It, it, they were gaining the battle. They were winning the fight. And David says that there's these shouts of joy that come in the victory of having one's sin forgiven. God responds with a declaration of his covenantal love for his people. God will deal kindly and gently with us in dealing with sin. God will deal kindly with us in showing us how we are to live. I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you will go. God's word is for our well-being. God's instruction is for our benefit. One of the things that we really have to be convinced of is that God is not trying to make our lives miserable by his word, by his commands, by his instruction. God isn't trying to sap every bit of fun and joy out of your life. In fact, he's trying to give you a life that is filled with joy and delight. The worldly point of view is deceptive. The Bible is filled with do's and don'ts. And there are a lot of people that think, you know, living the crystal life is miserable, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But the way of the Lord is peace. There's benefit in living your life the way that you should. There's a reward in not committing adultery. It's a blessing to your marriage. To not have to deal with that in the back of your mind, not to have to work through all the issues. And we take such things for granted. Be thankful if that's not in your experience. Be thankful if you're not having to go through all those issues and consequences. Praise God for what he has spared you from. That he gave you a heart to follow his word. I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you'll go. Then it says this, I will counsel you with my eye upon you. I I will counsel you with my eye upon you. I will lead you with my eye upon you. Another illustration. My dad, as I, I said, when I was a child, I had to sit next to him and his hand would rest on my lap. When I became a teenager, I was allowed to move and I could sit with my friends are over here? Okay. And uh, I don't know what your r- rule is with your parents, but for me, I could sit wherever I wanted with my friends, but I had to sit in front of my parents. They had to be able to see me. Most importantly, my dad had to be able to see me. And not only did he have to be able to see me, but he had to be able to make eye contact with me. And so... If there was something going on in this group over here that I was a part of, if there was a little jittering, and little talking and passing her notes or something, my dad would look at me. That's all, he'd just look at me. And he'd stare at me until, until uh, he got my attention. You know, you can tell if somebody's staring at you. And I'd glance over at him and he'd just look at me. And that was, wise up, okay? Knock it off. Didn't No hand, no nothing, just looking at me. But I knew that if I kept it up, he wasn't going to get up in the service and he wasn't going to reprimand me, but man, when I got home, he was going to deal with me. He was going to deal with me. This is what is illustrated in this psalm. David said, or excuse me, God says, I will guide you with mine eye. That is his gentle, gentle dealing with us. He'll, he'll bring conviction, gently. He'll reveal to us what we've done. If we are sensitive, if we respond, if we care about his eye and his displeasure. You know, if, if I'm smart, I'm gonna listen to my dad. Silent voice, just looking at me. B, God encourages us not to resist his will. God encourages us not to be stubborn like a mule and refusing to follow instruction. Be not like a horse or a mule. Don't be like that. Without understanding. A mule doesn't think about the consequences of what he does, he's just stubborn. Think about the consequences. And because they have no understanding, it says in the end of verse 9, which must be curbed with bit and bridle or will not stay near you. Again, big word picture for me. Because not only did I grow up on a farm, but my my father uh, also boarded and trained horses. And uh, he trained horses for uh, show horses, uh, Devon Horse Show, et cetera, et cetera. And so my, my dad would board probably 16 to 20 horses. And I was just a kid, and so I wasn't good for a lot when it comes to working, but uh, one of my responsibilities as a, as a kid was to exercise these horses, and, and I would ride them. And uh, that would be my, my job. I'd take these horses out for an exercise, and I'd be 10 years old riding a stallion. Let me tell you something about bitten bridles if you don't know about them, because it's such a picture. Uh, a bridle oftentimes doesn't have a, a bit. It just fits over the horse's head, goes over the nose area under, under the chin. Just, but it, it doesn't control the mouth at all. If you have a really well-trained horse, you can just ride with a bridle. If you have an extremely well-trained horse, you don't even need a bridle. You can just guide them by holding on to the mane or sometimes even just by squeezing your legs. But not every horse is that well behaved. And so they make bits. And a bit fits in a horse's mouth. And uh, it brings a horse under control by controlling the mouth and most importantly by controlling the tongue. And there are a lot of different kinds of bits. There are bits that there's a straight bar and it's padded. It's got leather on it. It's relatively soft, just so you can put pressure on the horse's tongue and get the horse to, to obey. There are hinged bits where the metal bar is broken in half, so you can, you can bring pressure on one side or the other. I won't go into them all, but there, there's also a bit that will fit over a horse's tongue and underneath its tongue, in that fleshy part underneath, so you can pull back If that horse is really honoring, it doesn't want to follow you, you can, man, you control the horse's tongue, you control the horse. That's the imagery here. Don't be like that kind of horse. Don't require a bit. Don't require God's heavy-handedness in your life to bring you to a place of conviction. Let him guide you with his eye. Be sensitive, be ready to experience God's forgiveness. Two, God encourages us not to experience misery, but the blessedness of God's enduring love. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. The one who won't repent. Many are their sorrows. How miserable a state is in. But steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. You come to the Lord for forgiveness. You're going to experience His love. You're going to experience His embrace. It's the parable of the prodigal son. He's longing for you to come to Him, and those who come to Him, He will in no wise cast out. Come boldly under the throne of grace to find help and strength in time of need. God will welcome you. That's why Christ died. Why rose again? Why he intercedes for us? Don't go through misery. Receive his forgiveness. So, the concluding summary we're encouraged to experience all the blessings of forgiveness. Be glad in the Lord. Rejoice, you righteous. Shout for joy, all you that are upright in heart. Move to that place of of joyful forgiveness. Of expressing thanks for all that he's done for us. Knowing that we are restored. Knowing that we are forgiven. Knowing that we continue on in our service for him. That's Psalm 32. That's David's life. I've been talking about this morning the importance of of putting the scripture together, of integrating different stories and passages, et cetera, et cetera. Because it gives you a fuller picture. It's so easy to look at 2 Samuel and think that that's like a moment in time that that just happens. David repents and David has this child. and, And it gives you these highlights. And you don't realize that months have passed. You don't realize that years have passed between the death of David's first child and he has two more children. and then finally Solomon's born you don't realize that time passes you don't realize that all that it is and let me just say we don't understand when we look at people who are smiling who are giving us a stiff upper lip We don't understand the misery and the heartache that churns underneath. It's a terrible thing to feel like we have dishonored God and he's displeased. People don't want to say that publicly and they don't want to act like that publicly and they smile and they laugh and they go home and they weep and they ache and they long for that sense of forgiveness, that sense of restoration, the sense of God's forgiveness to be at peace with God. We looked at Psalm fifteen, one: restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Never deny. (laughs) Never deny people the joy of forgiveness. Extend it. Rejoice with them when God forgives them because they've been through misery and heartache that you haven't seen but they've experienced. Don't withhold God's forgiveness. That's not dishonoring God, that is honoring God. He is the one who told us to forgive. He is the one who taught us to pray, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive our debtors, Extend to us the kind of forgiveness that we're going to extend to others. Let people rejoice in being forgiven. And I hope, I hope, I hope if there's anyone here that needs to rejoice, they'll experience the delight of knowing that they are in favor with God and their sins have been removed as far as the east is from the west that they are buried in the uttermost parts of the sea they are covered up they are not held accountable before God that's Psalm 32 and that's David's life he was not crippled forever he was forgiven Let's pray. Almighty God, we rejoice in the message of forgiveness. We rejoice that you extend to us forgiveness. Forgiveness for repeated sin. You have taught us, when the disciples asked the question, how often shall I forgive? Seven times? And your response was 70 times seven. Oh, Lord, may we understand that you're a God who forgives 70 times 7. You are a God when we come before you repeatedly with the same sin and we know that it's not right and we have agonized over the fact that this is the same sin and I've confessed it time and time and time again. Thank you, O God, that you forgive me again. Thank you, O God, that you restore me again. Thank you, O God, that you extend to us the promise of eternal life and being in your presence forever and ever. Restore to us the joy of our salvation and help us to joy and to experience the rejoicing with others who have experienced your forgiveness. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.